So Matthew writes, the book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Abraham was the father of Isaac, and Isaac the father of Jacob, and Jacob the father of Judah and his brothers, and Judah the father of Perez and Zerah by Tamar, and Perez the father of Hezron, and Hezron the father of Ram, and Ram the father of Aminadab, and Aminadab the father of Nashon, and Nashon the father of Salmon, and Salmon the father of Boaz by Rahab, and Boaz the father of Obed by Ruth, and Obed the father of Jesse, and Jesse the father of David the king. And David was the father of Solomon by the wife of Uriah, and Solomon the father of Rehoboam, and Rehoboam the father of Abijah, and Abijah the father of Asaph, and Asaph the father of Jehoshaphat, and Jehoshaphat the father of Joram, and Joram the father of Uzziah, and Uzziah the father of Jotham, and Jotham the father of Ahaz, and Ahaz the father of Hezekiah, and Hezekiah the father of Manasseh, and Manasseh the father of Amos, and Amos the father of Josiah, and Josiah the father of Jeconiah, and his brothers at the time of de the deportation to Babylon. And after the deportation to Babylon, Jeconiah was the father of Shealtiel, and Shealtiel the father of Zerubbabel, and Zerubbabel the father of Abiud, and Abiud the father of Eliakim, and Eliakim the father of Azor, and Azor the father of Zadok, and Zadok the father of Achim, and Achim the father of Eliud, and Eliud the father of Eliezer, and Eliezer the father of Mathan, and Mathan the father of Jacob, and Jacob the father of Joseph, the husband of Mary, of whom Jesus was born, who is called Christ. So all the generations from Abraham to David were 14 generations, and from David to the deportation to Babylon, 14 generations, and from the deportation to Babylon to the Christ, 14 generations. Great, well, we're going to look at that together. And you'll be glad I didn't ask any of you to read that one. Um, let's pray and ask for God's help as we look at it. Our Father, we thank you for your word. And we thank you that it is good, um, that you speak to us through it, and that you have something to say to us today. And so we pray that by your spirit, you'd be at work in our hearts, that you would um, open our eyes to see you and, and our hearts to receive your word today. And we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, uh, today marks the beginning of another Advent season. Uh, I wonder how you are feeling about Christmas this year. For some of you, perhaps it's your, your favorite time of the year. Uh, maybe you find something magical uh, about this season and you get right into the spirit of Christmas. Maybe you're gearing up to celebrate with family and friends that perhaps you haven't seen since this time last year. Or, or maybe there are particular traditions that you really enjoy as part of your festivities. Uh, a favorite movie maybe that you always sit down and watch at this time of year. I was speaking to someone the other day who uh, has a series of movies that they watch every year in a particular order through these weeks. Uh, they really get into it. Or, or, or maybe there's a board game that doesn't seem to come out at any other time of the year but gets played at Christmas. So maybe it's a, a time of year you really look forward to uh, and you get up for. Or, or maybe uh, as you look around at what's going on in the world right now, uh, the war in 
Ukraine, the cost of living crisis, the increasingly polarized opinions in our society, and, and perhaps you're, you're conscious of the emotional toll that the last few years have taken on you. Maybe you come into this Christmas season feeling a bit flat. Uh, maybe the magic has worn off for you. You see, if all we have to look forward to this Christmas are a few movies and presents around the tree, then the best that we can hope for is a brief distraction from the real troubles that our world is facing. A few weeks of temporary respite before we go back to enduring the struggles of living in a broken world. And if the sum total of Christmas was just a, a few weeks of tinsel trees and uh, slayed on repeat, then there really wouldn't be all that much to celebrate. Certainly not having to listen to Slade on repeat. There is nothing to celebrate about that. Um, it would be a bit like fiddling while Rome burns. But as Christians, as we begin another Advent season, we have every reason to celebrate. And that's because the true hope of Christmas is far more lasting and goes far deeper than a few weeks of twinkling lights and Christmas tunes. The message of Christmas is a message that gives hope, not a vague, uncertain feeling of optimism while we hang decorations for a couple of weeks. No, a sure and certain hope that is rooted in history and points to eternity. A hope that transcends whatever our present circumstances might be. And that's exactly what we see in the passage that we're looking at today. Now, on first reading, the opening verses of Matthew's gospel, they are not particularly riveting, are they? And we might ask ourselves, why would Matthew begin his gospel like this? These verses, they don't exactly grab our attention. What we have is essentially a long list of names. But these verses, they actually tell us something very important. They tell us that Matthew's account, it's not a fictional Christmas story. It's an account that is grounded in history. Matthew is telling us that the hope of Christmas, it's a hope that's found not in some undefined magical feeling, but in a real flesh and blood human being who really did exist, whose family line can actually be traced. He tells us, verse 1, that this is the genealogy of Jesus Christ. Now that word genealogy in the Greek uh, is the Greek word for, for Genesis, which means beginning. The first line of the New Testament echoes the title of the first book of the old. And what Matthew is saying is that the birth of Jesus marks a new beginning, a new hope for the human race. This list of names points us to where the hope for our world lies, in a baby who would be laid in a manger. But how does Jesus' birth do that? Well, first of all, we see here that he is the long-awaited king that God's people have been waiting for. Notice the title that Matthew gives Jesus in verse 1, that word Christ. That's not Jesus' surname. Christ means the promised king. The Old Testament spoke of a promised king, a, a Messiah, who would one day come and fulfill all God's promises to his people. 
And right at the beginning of his gospel, Matthew makes that extraordinary claim that Jesus was the one that they had been waiting for. He was the Messiah, the Christ. He was, verse 1, the son of David. God had promised David, Israel's greatest ever king, that it would be from his line that this promised king would come. He would rescue God's people from their enemies and he would rule forever. But God's promised hope, it went further back even than that. Matthew tells us in verse 1 that Jesus wasn't just the son of David, he was also the son of Abraham. Hundreds of years earlier, right back at the beginning of the Bible in the book of Genesis, God had promised to Abraham that his seed, one of his descendants, would be a blessing to all the nations. And Matthew is saying that Jesus is the one who fulfills God's promise to Abraham. He is that promised seed. And so the Jews who first read this account of Jesus, they would have been in no doubt as to the claim that Matthew was making. Their long-awaited Messiah had come. The Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham, the one who came to bring salvation, a salvation that would last forever. It was available through this baby boy. There's a lot of stuff packed into that first verse. There's a lot there for one baby to live up to. It's quite a claim that Matthew makes right at the very beginning of his gospel. And so he then proceeds to support that claim by going through this family tree, demonstrating that Jesus is part of the family line to which the Christ belongs. And the names that he lists, they remind us of the many, many promises of the Old Testament, promises of restoration, promises of renewal, promises of one who would rule in peace and justice. Matthew wants us to see that this baby is the one who fulfills all these promises. Now, if we were to take time to look at this family line in depth, one thing that would become very clear is that God always keeps his promises. Those promises that God made to Abraham and to David, uh, they saw a brief and partial fulfillment in the Old Testament under the rule of King David and under King Solomon. During their reign, the, the nation of Israel became a shining light to the surrounding nations. But very quickly, that spiraled into decline. And the list of names from verse 6 to verse 11, it covers a variety of kings in Israel's history, alternating between good kings and bad kings. Times where God's people were more faithful, and times where despite God's mercy, the people rejected him. And they got caught up in worshiping the gods of the surrounding nations. And eventually things get so bad that Israel was conquered and the people were deported to Babylon. And all the promises that God made, they seemed to be in tatters. No king, no land, seemingly no hope. But during those years of exile, the Old Testament prophets spoke of a day where God's covenant promises to his people would be fulfilled. That God would remain faithful to the promises that he'd made. And sure enough, that's what we see. 
Uh, That's what the final part of this genealogy reveals. God had not forgotten his people. Verse 12 to 16, it covers the time of of deportation and exile and then the return to the land. And in verse 16, we're told of the birth of Jesus. So what you have in that list of names at the beginning of Matthew's gospel is a great sweep of Old Testament history that leads us up to this promised king who was promised way back at the beginning, who would fulfill all of God's promises to his people in a far greater way than they could ever have imagined. This king who wouldn't just rule over a plot of land somewhere in the Middle East, but who would rule in peace over all nations for all time. This king who would bring hope to the world had finally arrived. See, the true hope of Christmas is far deeper and far more lasting than any vague conception of Christmas magic. It's a hope that goes right back to the very beginning. It's a hope that is rooted in the promises of God. And that means that it is a hope that transcends our present circumstances. Whatever we might be facing this Christmas, we can take hold of the fact that the hope that Jesus brings is secure. God is faithful, and he is almighty, just as we were saying in that call to worship at the beginning of our service. There is nothing that can thwart the purposes of an almighty God. What he says, he will do. And he has promised a glorious future to his people, a future where the Christ, this promised king, will rule in love and justice and peace for eternity, a future where there will be no more war, a future where all the temporary struggles that we face this Christmas will one day cease, a future where all brokenness will be restored. And as we dwell on that, as we meditate on that hope, then we have every reason to celebrate this Christmas. That we can know a joy that isn't based on our emotional state at any point. It's a joy that transcends our circumstances as we remember the eternal purposes and promises of God. So Christmas tells us of a hope that is rooted in history, a hope that's been promised from the beginning, a hope that transcends our circumstances. And secondly, it tells us of a hope that deals with our biggest problem. If you take time to carefully study the names in that genealogy, then what you will learn is that Jesus' family tree was full of all kinds of brokenness. Abraham passed his wife off as his sister and handed her over to another man to save his own skin. Jacob betrayed his brother and lied to his father in order to gain an inheritance that didn't belong to him. Judah slept with his daughter-in-law Tamar thinking she was a prostitute. Rahab, she was a prostitute. David committed adultery and saw to it that his lover's husband was killed in battle so that he could take her 
for himself. I could go on, but you get the idea. All sorts of selfishness, all kinds of brokenness ran through Jesus' line. The consistent message throughout the Bible and what this family tree tells us is this. That the heart of the human problem is the problem of the human heart. Our hearts are broken. We were made to love God, but instead we chose to love ourselves. And it is our self-love, our sin, that is at the root of the brokenness in our world. Human beings are at odds with the God who made us. That's why, left to ourselves, there really is no hope. And that's why our world so desperately needs the true hope of Christmas. The solution is not in here. It comes from outside us. God came as a baby to do what we couldn't do by ourselves. He came to change our hearts. As we read through the genealogy of Jesus, we see the Bible's answer to the problem. The birth of Jesus heals our brokenness. When we look at Jesus' family tree, it might come as a bit of a surprise that God's promised king would come into the world through that family. It's a family history that is full of shame and disgrace. It's the kind of family that you might want to keep quiet about. But Matthew lays it all out for us right at the start of his gospel. He doesn't try and sweep it under the carpet. And that is because the family that Jesus came from, it anticipates the family that he came for. By choosing to be born into a family of liars and adulterers, God is making it crystal clear just how deep his grace is willing to go. He's telling us that no one, absolutely no one, is beyond the reach of his compassion. There is no sin so dark that the light of Christ cannot forgive. Jesus came to heal a broken world. And that begins by healing the brokenness that exists within each one of us. The wonderful news of Christmas is that none of us are beyond hope. None of us. Jesus' sacrifice is sufficient to pay the penalty for anyone who turns from their sin and trusts in him. They can know his love. They can know his forgiveness. They can know freedom from guilt and shame through Jesus. It's only through Jesus Christ that the problem of our hearts can be solved, that our sin can be dealt with, that true hope can be found. So Christmas tells us of a promised hope that transcends our circumstances. It speaks of a hope that heals our brokenness. And finally, it points us to a hope that lasts for eternity. In C.S. Lewis' book, The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe, uh, we learn of Narnia, a, a world where it's always winter and never Christmas. And sometimes in our world, it can feel like that, can't it? That we are living in a world where there is no sign that the, the winter 
is coming to an end. No real sign of hope. But Jesus' birth announces that Christmas has come. That the darkness of winter is over. And hope has dawned. The king has come. And he's a king who brings life. See, the thing about family trees is that they, they repeatedly remind us of our own mortality. Generations come and go. We're born, and then we die. And Christmas can be a painful reminder of that. It's often at Christmas that we become keenly aware of, of loved ones who are no longer with us. Death is a, a painful reality that we all have to face. And in the Bible, it's an enemy. It's a result of the curse of sin on our world. And yet the genealogy of Jesus, it ends in verse 16, not with his death, but with his birth. His life's like no other on this list because his life didn't end in death. The cross is not the end of the story. Three days later, Jesus rose to life again. He defeated death and the resurrection, it changes everything. Because Jesus rose to life again, all who trust in him share in his resurrection life. We can live our lives knowing that death has been defeated, that the promise of eternity has been secured for God's people. And that completely changes the playing field. Jesus came to bring an end to the darkness of winter. And that was the plan from the very beginning. You see, the names on this list they have far greater significance than, than simply playing their part in Jesus' family tree. Through their lives, these people, in some sense, give a glimpse of the promised king long before he came. In Abraham, we get a glimpse of Jesus, who didn't just leave a far country to go where God sent him, but gave up all the riches of heaven and was born into poverty on earth. In Isaac, we get a glimpse of Jesus, who wasn't just offered up to be sacrificed by his father on a mountain, but who actually was sacrificed on our behalf, demonstrating the father's love for us. In the story of Boaz, Ruth, and Obed, we get a glimpse of Jesus, who was born into a seemingly insignificant domestic scene in Bethlehem, while all along being integral to the purposes of God. In David, we get a glimpse of Jesus, who didn't just win the victory for God's people over a human enemy bringing freedom, but actually defeated the enemies of Satan, sin, and death bringing eternal life. This baby in the manger, this one we focus on at Christmas, he is at the very center of human history. Everything points to him. Because he is no ordinary baby. He is the one in whom all God's promises find their yes. As the angel goes on to say in verse 23, he is Emmanuel, God with us. For a hope that lasts beyond a few weeks at Christmas, God had to act. And in Jesus Christ, that is what he has done. The extraordinary claim of Christmas, the claim that is at the very heart of of the Christian faith is that God came into this world in the person of his son, taking on human flesh. In Jesus Christ, God dwelt among us. He came to save his people from their sins. 
He is that promised king, the very center of human history, the one to whom all the law and all the prophets point. This passage is so much more than just a long list of names. This is the announcement of a savior. It's a birth that tells us of a hope that lasts. A birth that tells us that all brokenness can be healed. A birth that says that the hope is not just a possibility, it's a reality for those who trust in Jesus. That is the hope that our world needs this Christmas. And it's a hope that if you belong to Jesus, then you enjoy today. So rest in it. Take comfort from it. Enjoy it. Celebrate it. And would it be our prayer that as we rejoice in our hope this Christmas, those around us would catch a glimpse of the beauty of our Savior, and they would come to know that hope for themselves. Well, let's pray together. Our Lord, we thank you so much for the hope that we have in Jesus Christ, a hope that is rooted in, in eternity, a hope that transcends our present circumstances, a hope that brings eternal life. And we pray, Lord God, that we would rejoice in that hope, that we would rest in it. Lord, when we're tempted to be drawn away, uh, where we're tempted to be downcast, where we're tempted to lose hope, Lord, would you lift our eyes to you this Christmas? And Lord, would it be a hope that shines out from us uh, and that is a hope that others this Christmas would experience, that they would see the, the dramatic difference between a few weeks of Christmas magic uh, and the, the hope that transcends all things. And Lord, we pray that as we come to this table to take bread and wine now, that, that you would remind us afresh of our hope that your spirit would minister to us. And we pray these things in Jesus' precious name. Amen.